The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Today's topic is Anatta, the teaching on not-self. The original title was Selves and Not-Self, and somehow it morphed into a plural, Not-Selves. For those of you who feel that you're being cheated and you're not getting enough Not-Selves, please let me know. (laughs) But it is Selves and Not-Self today. This is probably one of the Buddha's most counterintuitive teachings, at least at first sight. Although, as we'll be pointing out today, he's actually talking about something we do all the time. He's simply asking us to be more systematic about it. Because the topic is abstract, I will start out, one, making the main point of today's presentation, so you can keep this in mind as we go throughout the day, which is that the Buddha never took a position on whether or not there is a self. As we'll see, when he was asked point blank, is there a self, he didn't say there is a self, he didn't say there is no self. He treats the process of selfing as a verb. It's a kind of karma. You make your sense of who you are. You make your sense of what belongs to you. This is called I-making and my-making in the Pali. Ahangara, mamangara. And it's a form of karma. It's something you do. It has consequences. And as with all the issues of karma, there are types of karma that are unskillful. And there's those that are skillful in a worldly sense and those that are skillful in the ultimate sense. And the ultimate sense, the ultimate ultimate skillful karma is the karma that brings the mind to a point where it creates no more karma. And in the same way with eye-making and mind-making, you, you learn how to drop your unskillful ways of making a sense of self, replace them with more skillful ways of making a sense of self, until finally you get to the point where you don't need a sense of self anymore, then you can drop it entirely. That's... That's the basic point of today's talk. If you want to go move your cars, you can do it now. Because <laughs> okay. just as with karma, you don't just drop karma. And you don't just drop your process of eye-making. You have to make your eye more and more skillful until you no longer need it. And so when we think about when the Buddha is teaching, teaching a not-self or anatta, He's not answering the question of whether or not there is a self. He's not answering the question of what am I. He's answering the question of what is skillful. What, when I do it, will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness. In this case, what kind of selfing, what kind of not selfing will lead to long-term welfare and happiness. So we're talking about a process which is designed to bring about happiness. But before we actually get into the topic, I'd like to read your story. Um, This is from the book, The Once and Future King by T.H. White. And you will notice that the story is told from a very Judaic Christian kind of view, but it illustrates a point that we'll be making throughout the day. I don't know if you know the book, it's um, T.H. White's retelling of the King Arthur legend. And in the very first book, young Arthur, or who's called Wart, is being turned by Merlin into different kinds of animals to learn lessons from the animals. And this is the lesson he gets from the badger. Okay. He, walk, he goes into the badger, badger's warren and finds out the badger is very much like an Oxford don. Okay. I'm writing a treatise just now, said the badger, coughing diffidently, 
to show that he was absolutely set on explaining it, which is to point out why man has become the master of the animals. Perhaps you'd like to hear it. It's for my doctor's degree, you know, he added hastily, before the wart could protest. He got few chances of reading his treatises to anybody, so he could not bear to let the opportunity slip by. Thank you very much, said the wart. It will be good for you, dear boy. It's just the thing to top off an education. Study birds and fish and animals, then finish off with man. How fortunate that you came. Now, where the devil did I put that manuscript? The old gentleman scratched about his great claws until he had turned up a dirty bundle of papers, one corner of which had been used for lighting something. Then he sat down in his leather armchair, which had a deep depression in the middle of it, put on his velvet smoking cap with a tassel, and produced a pair of torrential spect spectacles, which he balanced on the end of his nose. <clears throat> said the badger. He immediately became paralyzed with shyness and sat blushing at his papers, unable to begin. Go on, said the wart. It's not very good, he explained coyly. It's just a rough draft. You know, I shall alter it a lot before I send it in. I'm sure it must be interesting. Oh, no, it is not a bit interesting. It's just an odd thing I threw off in an odd half hour to pass the time. But still, this is how it begins. Here he begins to read. People often ask, as an idle question, whether the process of evolution began with a chicken or the egg. Was there an egg out of which the first chicken came, or did a chicken lay the first egg? I am in a position to say that the first thing created was the egg. When God had manufactured all the eggs out of which the fishes and the serpents and the birds and the mammals and even the duck-billed platypus would eventually emerge, he called the embryos before him and saw that they were good. Perhaps I ought to explain, added the badger, lowering his papers nervously and looking at the wart over the edge of them, that all embryos look very much the same. They are what you are before you were born. And whether you're going to be a tadpole or a peacock or a camel leopard or a man, when you're an embryo, you look just like a peculiarly repulsive and helpless human being. I continue as follows. The embryos stood in front of God with their feeble hands clasped politely over their stomachs and their heavy heads hanging down respectfully. Of this passage, and God addressed them. <clears throat> he said, Now, you embryos, here you are all looking exactly the same, and we are going to give you the choice of what you want to be. When you grow up, you'll get bigger anyway, but we are pleased to grant you another gift as well. You may alter any parts of yourselves into anything which you think would be useful to you in later life. For instance, at the moment, you cannot dig. Anybody who would like to turn his hands into a pair of spades or garden forks is allowed to do so. Or, to put it another way, at present you can only use your mouths for eating. Anybody who would like to use his mouth as an offensive weapon can change it by asking and be a cork and drill or a saber-toothed tiger. Now then, step up and choose your tools, but remember that what you choose you will grow into and will have to stick to. All the embryos thought the matter over politely, and then one by one they stepped up before the eternal throne. They were allowed two or three specializations so that some chose to use their arms as flying machines and their mouths as weapons or crackers or drillers or spoons, while others selected to use their bodies as boats and their hands as oars. We badgers thought very hard and decided to ask three boons. We wanted to change our skins for shields, our mouths for weapons, and our arms for garden forks. These boons were granted. Everybody specialized in one way or another, and some of us in very queer ones. For instance, one of the desert lizards decided to swap his whole body for blotting paper. And one of the toads who lived in the droughty antipodes decided simply to be a water bottle. <laughs> the asking granting took up two long days. They were the fifth and sixth, so far as I remember. And at the very end of the sixth day, 
near the end of the sixth day, just before it was time to knock off for Sunday. They had got through all the little embryos except one. This embryo was man. Okay. Well, our little man, said God, you have waited till the last and slept on your decision. And we are sure you have been thinking hard all the time. What can we do for you? Please, God, said the embryo, I think you have made me in the shape which I now have for reasons best known to yourselves, and it would be rude to change. If I am to have my choice, I will stay as I am. I will not alter any of the parts which you gave me for other and doubtless inferior tools. And I will stay a defenseless embryo all my life, doing my best to make myself a few feeble implements out of the wood, iron, and other materials which you have seen fit to put before me. If I want a boat, I will try to construct it out of trees. And if I want to fly, I will put together a chariot to do it for me. Probably I have been very silly in refusing to take advantage of your kind offer, but I have done my very best to think it over carefully. And now I hope that the feeble decision of this small innocent will find favors with yourselves. Well done, exclaimed the Creator in delighted tones. Here, all you embryos, come here with your beaks and whatnots to look upon our first man. He is the only one who has guessed our riddle out of all of you, and we have the great pleasure in conferring upon him the order of dominion over the fowls of the air and the beasts of the earth and the fishes of the sea. Now let the rest of you get along and love and multiply, for it is time to knock off for the weekend. As for you, man, you will be a naked tool all your life, though a user of tools. That's the line, okay? You will look like an embryo till they bury you, but all the others will be embryos before your might. Eternally undeveloped, you will always remain potential in our image able to see some of our sorrows and to feel some of our joys. We are partly sorry for you, man, but partly hopeful. Run along then and do your best. And listen, man, before you go. Well, asked Adam, turning back from his dismissal. We were only going to say, said God shyly, twisting their hands together. Well, we were only just to say, God bless you. <laughs> okay. The point of the story is if you identify with your tools, you're going to be stuck with your tools forever. But if you learn how to use your tools, okay, you can become a master of them. In the same way, your sense of self is, can be used as a tool. As long as the things that you identify with as yourself, you don't really identify with, and you learn how, how and when to let them go, okay, then you're beginning to understand the Buddha's teachings on not-self. Because remember, the purpose and extent of the Buddha's teachings is strictly this question of suffering and how to put an end to suffering. That's the first line in the first reading. Before and now, it's only stress that I describe and the cessation of stress. And this is what it's all about. And the teachings on not-self are designed as a means to bring about the cessation of stress and suffering. The underlying assumption here is that the big issue in life is the fact that we suffer. We want true happiness. So the purpose of the not-self teaching and of the various self-teachings that we're going to be finding out is as means to happiness. If you take this question of suffering and the end of suffering and add the principle of causality, you've got the Four Noble Truths, which covers the whole teaching. So the Buddha is putting some restrictions on the topics he covers and on the questions that he's willing to answer. Questions are rated as to whether they will help cause suffering or act as, as an end to suffering. Based on this, the Buddha decided to, at one point he talks about that there are four ways of answering questions. This is in passage two. Four ways of answering questions, which four questions that should be answered categorically, in other words, straightforwardly, yes, no, this or that. 
questions that should be answered with an analytical or qualified answer. In other words, you redefine the terms. Then there are questions that should be answered with a counter-question. Usually these are ones where the question itself is not clear, or if the Buddha, before he gives his answer, he wants to make a, create an analogy to help the listener understand what he's about to say. And then finally, there are the questions that should be put aside. These are the ones that don't deserve an answer at all. And here we're talking about, in the larger purpose of whether or not the question is helpful in putting an end to suffering. If it actually gets in the way of putting into suffering or is totally irrelevant, those are the questions the Buddha would put aside. So among the questions that the Buddha put aside is, is there a self, is there no self? This is passage three. Then the wanderer Vajagoda went to the Blessed One and on arrival exchanged courteous greetings with him. After an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, he sat down to one side. As he was sitting there, he asked the Blessed One, Now then, Venerable Gautama, is there a self? When this was said, the Blessed One was silent. Then is there no self? The second one, the Blessed One was silent. The, the wanderer got up from his seat and left. Obviously, angry at the Buddha for not answering his question. So, Ananda, ever solicitous, comes in and asks, Well, why did you not answer when you were asked these questions? And here's the Buddha's explanation. He says, Ananda, if I, being asked by Wachagoda the wanderer if there is a self, were to answer that there is a self, that would be conforming with those Brahmins and contemplatives who are exponents of eternalism, the view that there is an eternal, unchanging soul. If I, being asked by him if there is no self, were to answer that there is no self, that would be conforming with those Brahmins and contemplatives who are exponents of annihilationism, the view that death is the annihilation of consciousness. <laughs> if I, again, were to answer that there is a self, would that be keeping in with the arising of knowledge that all phenomena, all dhammas, we'll get into the meaning of that term later on in the day, are not self? No. And if I, being asked by him if there is no self, would answer there is no self, the bewildered Vachagoda would become even more bewildered. Does the self I used to have now not exist? So the Buddha saw that it was useless to answer those questions. And it's not just a question of... Some, some people will say if somebody else had asked the question of the Buddha, he would have given a straight answer. Because only one of those reasons for not answering it has anything to do with Vachagoda. It's the last one. The other three hold across the board. If any of us were to go to ask the Buddha, is there a self? And if he answered either yes or no, he'd be siding with the eternalists or the annihilationists, who are the, sort of the wrong view types. So he's basically saying that this question, okay, is there a self, is there, not, is there no self, gets in the way of putting an end to suffering. Now you want to notice here that the Buddha is not giving a counter-question to Wachagod. He didn't say, well, what kind of self do you mean? He's talking about selves across the board. And he's not giving an analytical answer. In other words, trying to redefine the terms. This rules out the idea that the not-self-teaching not is aimed at negating a specific idea of self. In other words, he'd have to say, it depends on what you mean by self, and then go down the various meanings. But most, most interpretations you find with the not-self-teaching nowadays assume that this is the kind of answer he's giving. Um, there are three specific ones that you may find if you've been reading around on the topic. Um, one is that he's negating a specifically Upanishadic view of the self, in which you probably read that they have this sense of the small self and then the much larger self, the more cosmic self. In other words, this way his analytical answer would be, yes, you have a self, but it's, but it's not a permanent cosmic self. That would be one way of 
one way of interpreting his answer. Another way is just the opposite, that he's negating your small separate self to infirm the large interconnected self. In other words, you're adopting the Upanishadic view, that yes, you do have a connected self, but not a little separate self. Or he could affirm that the aggregates are what you are, but they don't qualify to be called a self. In other words, yes, you have a self, but not a permanent self. You've got this temporary self. And this, in fact, was the view that Indian Buddhist scholastics adopted and that many modern scholars adopt today. But it turns out that all these interpretations are wrong. To begin with, the Buddha in another, another spot points out that he's trying to negate all ideas of self. He talks, falls into four categories. There's passage number four, which if we look at it is going to be long and complicated, so I'm just going to give you kind of the outline. There are four types of self that you could think you have. One is material and finite. In other words, your body is yourself, okay? Or yourself is your conscious body. So you've got material and finite. The next one is it's material and infinite. And this would be that yourself is the whole cosmos, yourself is the whole world. A third view would be that it's immaterial and finite, which would be very similar to the Christian idea of a soul, that it's not made out of matter and that it's a finite thing. Or that yourself is immaterial and infinite. In other words, yourself is the spirit that animates the cosmos. So those categories pretty much cover everything. Finite and infinite, material or immaterial, and the various combinations of those. In other words, material and finite, material and infinite, material, immaterial and finite, and immaterial and infinite. And the Buddha points out that there are three ways of viewing yourself here in those terms. One is that it already is that way, right now. Another is that it's not that way yet, but you can make it be that way if you put in a certain amount of effort. Or the other is that it will naturally become that way when you die. In other words, it's either, either is the way you already are and it's unchangeable, or it changes naturally. Yourself becomes X at death or when you fall asleep is actually what the Upanishads talk about it. Or that you can change yourself through your will. And the Buddha goes through and he negates all of these. So he's not talking about a specific idea of self. He says any way you identify yourself, there's going to be problems in the process of identification regardless of the type of self that you're going, to, you're going to identify with. There's another passage, which is passage 5. We can look at this a little bit more. The image here is pretty striking. Just as a dog tied by a leash to a poster or stake keeps running around and circling around that very poster stake, in the same way an uninstructed run-of-the-mill person who has no regard for the noble ones is not well-versed or disciplined in their dharma, who has no regard for people of integrity is not well-versed or disciplined in their dharma, assumes form to be the self 
or the self as possessing form, or form as in the self, or the self as in form. Now each of those four ways is important. One is, say, you take your body to be you. That's the first one, is assuming your form to be the self. Or you would have this self, which is not the same thing as the body, but it possesses the body. It really owns the body. Kind of like the idea of a self that's kind of outside the body, possessing it. Or that your self, excuse me, form is in yourself. And here we could have a large cosmic self in which your body exists. As kind of the, the larger self is the big frame. Or the self as in form. This is what they call the homunculus theory, that you have this little tiny self inside you that, or up in your brain who's ordering things around, like the, the wizard in The Wizard of Oz. Okay, so that just has to do with one of the aggregates, form. And then the same pattern follows, as follows with all five of the aggregates. You can assume feeling to be the self or the self is possessing feeling, or feeling as in the self or the self is in feeling. The same with perception, the same with mental fabrications, or even the same with consciousness. You can identify your consciousness to be yourself, or that you sometime, somehow have a sense that possesses the consciousness, or that your consciousness is in yourself or yourself is in consciousness. As long as you assume these things, you keep running around and circling around that very form, that very feeling, that very perception, those very fabrications, that very consciousness. Okay, the image here, of course, is being bound and limited. Because of this, you are not set loose from these things, and not being set loose from these things, you are not set loose from birth, aging, and death, from sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despair. You're not set loose from suffering and stress. So regardless of how you define the self with, with reference to the five aggregates, you're tied down by it. And so this, he's, he's, here, he's not just negating the small separate self, he's also negating any larger sort of interconnected cosmic idea of self in which these things would be. You know, the feeling as in the self or the perception as in the self. You have this larger container which could be cosmic. In fact, the Buddha is very clear that the idea of a cosmic self is foolish. Passage 6. Okay. He says, Monks, is there, where, there, where there is a self, would there be the thought of belonging to myself? And they said, yes. Or where there is what is belongs to self, would there be the thought myself? Yes. Where a self or what belongs to self are not pinned down as a truth or in reality, then the view position, this cosmos is the self after death, I, this I will be constant, permanent, eternal, not subject to change. I will stay just like that for an eternity. Isn't it utterly and completely a fool's teaching? <laughs> the Buddha is not always kind, you know. It's <laughs> pretty harsh. The point here is, if, say, the whole cosmos were yourself, you could move in on any part of the cosmos, right? and say, this is mine. But can you do that? I mean, do you even have control over your own body? Okay. So does the whole world belong to you? Does it lie under your control? No. Then it can't be yourself. That's the argument he's making. Okay. We'll also find later that the idea of a cosmos, cosmic self actually gets in the way of the practice, and we'll return to this point later, after we've looked at the Buddha's whole strategy. Finally, there's the belief that the aggregates are what you are, but they're not really a self, 
But the Buddha himself specifically states, and we'll, we'll be skipping around here, passage number nine. Look on the top of page four. He's talked about form as being inconstant and stressful. And the very top of page four, he says, And is it fitting to regard what is inconstant, stressful, subject to change, as this is mine, this is myself, this is what I am? And the answer is no. And that goes down for all the different aggregates. So the Buddha is saying that you can't say that your aggregates are what you are. Even if you can't say that they're a temporary self or a small self. Actually, what the five aggregates are, they're the raw material from which you create your sense of self through clinging. So in other words, th those three interpretations, one was that he's affirming a separate self and negating the larger self. As we see, that's not, and that's not a valid interpretation. Or that he's affirming the cosmic self and negating the separate self. That's not a valid interpretation. Or the idea is that your five aggregates are yourself, but it's a temporary self. That's not valid either. He's cutting the ground under every possible interpretation of what kind of self you can ultimately identify with. And this might be a good place to stop for a minute and ask if there are any questions. I want to make sure I haven't lost you. <laughs> yes. The cosmic self is the idea that you are the cosmos, or this is who your true self is. And this includes the idea of an interconnected self, that who we are, that we don't, that we, we we're to identify with a small separate self, and then we'll find happiness if we connect with one another and realize that we are all part of the same self. Again, the Buddha is saying no to that. Do you have any details on this cosmic self that you'd like to have? Yeah. Mm. Um, yes. There just seems to be a pretty fashionable view this, mm -hmm. this day and age that mm -hmm. this is a universal self. Can we use microphones, please? I'll repeat the question when he's done. Can we put a little louder? Okay. But it's hard to make it loud if, I don't, if he doesn't have a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think she wants it louder for me too, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. My voice tends to disappear. That's what everybody says, so that's awfully loud. That's, is this about right? Is this better? Okay, and I will try to speak more slowly. Okay. Okay. was that that seems to be a pretty fashionable view these days is that of the universal self. So right. mm -hmm. this is a bit surprising. I mm -hmm. hadn't read this part of the canon. So. Right. Well, the reason it's fashionable is that it fits right into the romantic view of why people are suffering. Um, their idea, and this goes way back to Schiller and other German romantics, which is that we suffer from a separate sense of self both a divided self inside and separate from the people around us. And if we could find a sense of connection with everybody around us and overcome the division inside, then we would feel happy. 
And that's pretty much permeated a lot of American Buddhism. And so what we're saying here is that you know, this, the Buddha really wouldn't have accepted that interpretation. Okay. There was a question here? Yeah. Got the mic. <coughs> Could you review what the five aggregates are? Five aggregates. First, you've got form, which covers not only your body, but also any physical thing that you or material thing that you could identify with. Then you have feeling, and feeling here is not emotion. It's simply the feeling tone of pleasure or pain or neither pleasure nor pain. Third one is perception, which is the labels that the mind places on things. If you look around the room, you can identify, you know, man, woman, man, woman, man, woman, ceiling, lights, whatever. Um, fabrication is the putting together of thoughts. It's like when you're talking to yourself inside, making comments on those lights and on those men and those women things. That's fabrication. And finally, consciousness is the awareness at the six senses. Um, sight, hearing, smell, taste, touch, and then ideation, which is the the sixth. So those are the five aggregates. Um, and as we'll be, getting, we'll be getting a little bit more into detail on, on these later on, especially when we start dealing with the aggregate of consciousness, because it turns out that's pretty complex. Yeah. Follow on to that. Um, what creates the self from the aggregates? Is that the mind? Or is that an unanswerable question? <laughs> <laughs> well, you just find you're looking at, we're interested in looking at the process of creation. And this will be a theme throughout the day, that the Buddha is not going to be talking about what's doing this or who's doing this. He's simply saying, how does the process happen? Where are the points where you can stop the process from happening? Because you're, you're not suffering from the thing that's doing it. You're suffering from the process. When you learn how to put a process to the end, you've solved the problem. So he's asking you to think about this, these issues in a different way. Not who's doing this. But how is it happening? So does the mind do it? The mind is, or just don't even. Oh. Well, even if I said the mind is doing it, if you, this is one of the interesting things about the Buddhist teachings. That the main topic is suffering. Now, where in the canon does he define suffering? He gives lots of examples, but even then, it's not a real definition. He talks about finding true happiness. There's no spot where he defines true happiness. He talks about you training the mind, but he never defines mind. <laughs> so this is, this is um, one way of explaining this that seems most useful to me. Is in ancient traditions, they made a distinction between what they called scribe knowledge and warrior knowledge. And scribe knowledge is the knowledge you can write down in words. And it's based on definitions. You define how X happens. And you define what X is, then you can talk about it. Warrior knowledge is more about skills. And say, you know, you, you go to the gym. Your concept of the body as you first walk into the gym is one concept, right? And then as you learn how to use the various machines, you learn about, I didn't realize I had that muscle. I didn't realize I could do that. And then your concept of the body is going to change as you train it. So you don't want to get tied down by definitions right at the very beginning. So we're all coming here, we have a sense of that we're suffering from something. 
And as we practice, we'll get more and more refined about what that suffering is and what it's not. We'll get a better idea of what the mind is, what it's not, as we practice. Questions back here? Occasionally, not even occasionally, once or twice I've had an experience of what I call the knower, some, something that knows without talking, you know, it just knows, knows. Would the Buddha reject that information? I don't even know what to call it, but would that be rejected by him? He would, he would say, ultimately, that's not yourself. No, I don't think it's myself. Yeah, but he would use it, if it's helping you get in concentration, he'd say, hang on to it. While it, while it works. Because, again, the, one of the points we'll be making today is that he does have you use a sense of self in certain ways throughout the practice. And you're going to find yourself identifying with certain activities. And as long as you're conscious of the fact that this is, an, you know, the, ide- the action of identifying is a kind of karma, for the time being it's skillful, and then ultimately it will get you to a point where you don't need it anymore and you can drop it. He's not asking you to throw away anything you need. If you're finding this useful for getting yourself into concentration, hang on to it. But that is, I mean, that falls into the aggregate of consciousness, what you're, what you're describing. So ultimately that cannot be taken as self. Yes. I want to go back to the separate self thing again. Um, it's the first I've heard what you said here. And I think that I, I, the way I understand it is a way toward compassion is to be able to equate my suffering um, to knowing that others experience that also. So he's not refuting that idea, I assume, just no. the separate self idea. Well, what he's saying is that... Um, if you take your happiness seriously and you see other people taking their happiness seriously, there are two reactions you can have. One is that a certain empathy, that we're basically on the same page. And then the second reaction is, if I try to make my happiness depend on that person's misery, they're going to try to destroy my happiness. Which is a less kind of emotional connection, but it's also seeing that my happiness has an impact on somebody else. Okay, so he's not refuting that idea. But he's also saying that the, these connections are suffering. You see somebody else suffering, and you can't do anything about their hap- about their suffering. It's going to pain you. And if you're looking for a way to be happy, you've got to be very, very careful not to step on anybody's toes. <laughs> Which is why he, the Buddha points you inside. Find your happiness inside. But ultimately, saying okay that we're going to be connected and that somehow will put an end to our suffering—that's not the case. Questions? Yeah, Bill. We've got two mics over here. This one here. So, getting away from the cosmic idea of self and back to the aggregates. Um, why did the Buddha say that um, our aggregates? the most limited and temporary uh, version of self, 
isn't a self? Or did he explain why it's not? He says, it, again, the whole purpose is, do you want to be happy? If you want to be happy, you don't want to identify with these things. And so he's teaching to see the process of identification as a process that you do. And to be sensitive to it. Because it's not that we... We'll get into this later, but it's not that you have one concept of self that you carry around with you all the time. Think about yourself going through the day. How many different selves do you create? You're a driver for a while. You're the, you're the self you have at the job, the self you have at home, the self that have, and even the self at the job. You have many different selves at the job. Somebody who's working under you walks into the room. You're one self. So it could get confusing to try to keep track of all this. Yes. Well, the thing is, it's. <laughs> what's what's the real problem is we tend to do this sort of with a knee-jerk reaction without really thinking about what we're doing. Are we doing this skillfully? Are we not doing this skillfully? And so the first question the Buddha has you ask is, how do you create a skillful sense of self? Okay. Thank you. And that leads right into the next topic, okay. which is reasons for why the Buddha says that if you try to affirm or negate any of these sidetracks, any of these ideas, it sidetracks you from the purpose of the teaching. The first one that we already saw in that his response to Wajagoda was that if you say there is a self or say there is no self, you get involved in wrong view. You carry out the implications, either you have an eternal soul or there's nothing there at all. Another set of reasons are given at Majjhima 2, which is passage number 7. I'm a little cold. Is that, I think it's coming in from that door. Oh. Did someone turn on the air conditioning? Okay. It's a little cold over here. Thank you. <laughs> okay, in passage number seven, it's a description of what's called appropriate attention and inappropriate attention. And the Buddha says inappropriate attention is that you attend to ideas that are fit for attention. You do not attend to ideas that are fit for attention. You attend instead to ideas that are unfit for attention. Okay, that makes sense. Now, this is a list. And this, I love this list because it is so convoluted. Um, this is how he, he attends inappropriately. Was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? I love this one. Having been what? What was I in the past? Okay. <laughs> Trying to trace your past history. And then tracing your future. Shall I be in the future? Will I exist after death? Will I not exist after death? What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I be in the future? Okay, covers all the all the alternatives. Or you're inwardly perplexed about the immediate present. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where is this being come from? Where is it bound? Now sometimes you've heard you know, the question of who am I or what am I is the ultimate spiritual question, but the Buddha says don't bother. <laughs> For this reason, as you attend inappropriately in this way, one of six kinds of view arises within you. The view that I have a self arises in you as true and established, 
or the view I have no self arises as true and established, or the view that it is precisely by means of the self that I perceive self. In other words, the self knows itself directly. Or the view it is precisely by means of self that I perceive not self. In other words, once you know yourself, it's through yourself that you learn about other things. Or I like, like this one. Okay, It is precisely by means of not self that I perceive self. In other words, you don't directly perceive yourself, but you can infer it from your actions in the world, that there must be a self in here who's directing things. Or else you have a view like this, this very self of mine, the knower that is sensitive here and there to the ripening of good and bad actions, is the self of mine that is constant, everlasting, eternal, not subject to change, and will endure as long as eternity. Okay, that's the eternalistic view of self. Okay, these are the six different ways the Buddha says, after you start answering the question of what am I or who am I, you end up with a view like this. Now all that he says here is that this is a thicket of views, a wilderness of views, a contortion of views, a writhing of views, a fetter of views. Is that a cool sentence? <laughs> <laughs> Bound by a fetter of views, the uninstructed run-of-the-mill person is not freed from birth, aging, and death, from sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. You are not freed, I tell you, from suffering and stress. So when you get involved in these questions, the problem is, is that you get yourself all tied up. Instead of sitting there and actually doing the practice, you start sitting around in discussion groups. What is myself? Who is myself? Let's get together and discuss this for the next seven years. You know? And you would still never come to an answer. So this is the other reason. In addition to leading you to a wrong view, you just get entangled in these things. And it's best to avoid those questions. A third reason for just avoiding trying to define yourself either as a cosmic or as a separate self or any kind of self is, as I said, the five aggregates are the raw material around which you define yourself. And then in passage 8, the Buddha says, if one, abstays, if one stays obsessed with form, here he's talking to a monk, that's what one is measured by or limited to. Okay, you're limited by the way you define yourself. Your potential for happiness gets limited. So as long as you are obsessed with these things, you're measured by them. That's, that's how you define yourself. And once you've defined yourself, you've limited yourself to that. Like the cock and drills or the desert blizzard that turned its body into blotting paper, that kind of thing. Once you identify yourself say, this is me, you're limited to that particular function. And finally, the fourth reason, okay, we've had three reasons so far for why the Buddha rejects any kind of view of self. One is that it gets you in involved in eternalism or annihilationism. The second one is that you get tied up in a thicket of views, a writhing of views, a contortion of views. The third is that you limit yourself when you define yourself. And the fourth, which I don't have a passage here for, is he points out how once you start with the idea of I am the thinker, any concepts that, come, that derive from that thought come back and attack you you become a subject to all the limitations and all the issues that come along with those. And you also get involved in conflict. For a minute, let's look here at this issue of a thicket of views. When you, when you try to define yourself in one way or another. And let's talk about this issue of trying to inf define yourself as being either intrinsically bad or intrinsically good. 
There are problems with both. Okay. If you define yourself as intrinsically bad, then the question is, how can intrinsically bad nature make itself good? You need help from an outside power, which gets in the way of the practice, because the whole practice is your ability to train your mind to find true happiness. However, if you decide that you're intrinsically good, then you've got lots of thickets of views to explain. One is, how can you explain how an intrinsically good self could suffer? If your self is intrinsically good, why would it suffer? It would have to be happy all the time. How could it cause suffering? If you're intrinsically good, how could you cause suffering? You just wouldn't be able to do it by nature. Or if somehow you were denatured from your good nature, if that could happen once, what's to keep it from happening again? You worked all that trouble to get back to your true nature, but if your true nature you know, can't be relied on, you could lose it again. Another drawback to the idea that you're inherently good is that it sometimes leads to complacency. In other words, when you settle down and get really still, wonderful insights arise in the mind and you can trust them. Now, can you? And this is one of the big lessons throughout the teachings is that even when the mind gets really, really still, you have to be very heedful about what arises. You can't trust everything that comes up in the mind. The kind of complacency also leads you to trust your motives unquestioningly. And this, this is what really can get a lot of meditators into trouble. Another thicket of views comes from the idea that you have no self. If you posit that you have no self, then the question is, how are you going to function? You need a sense of self in order to brush your teeth. You know? okay. Your teeth, you're responsible for. <laughs> you want them to last for a long time. Why would you want to last them for a long time? Because you identify yourself with who you're going to be down the line, right? You want to look after yourself down the line. This is called a healthy sense of self, and you need it. In fact, this realization that if you had no self, you couldn't function, this lies at the basis of most people's resistance to the teaching that there is no self, and it's a valid point. We need to have a sense of self because it's our strategy in order to function in the world to find happiness. So they feel that when they hear the teaching that there is no self, it is a threat that deprives them of their strategies for happiness. And that's a valid point. Then there are other metaphysical problems that go along with the idea that there is no self. And the first one is, how can you explain experience without reference to a self? Such things as personal memory. Why isn't your memory suddenly appearing in my mind? Why don't my memory suddenly appear in your mind? There must be some sort of boundary there that prevents that from happening. Another issue is, why is when one person dies, why isn't that person reborn as three people? instead of just one. Little Buddha notwithstanding. <laughs> Did you see Little Buddha? The idea that, okay, this, this crazy lama decides to have a little fun and gets reborn as three little kids instead of one little kid. Um, they're really messing with metaphysics. <laughs> okay, if you say there is no self, then who or what attains nirvana? If there's no self there, if you're just your aggregates, there's no self. Nirvana would be annihilation. And then who receives the results of my actions if there is no me? You know? 
So if you make that statement, there is no self, you, lie, you lay yourself open to all kinds of problems. Then there would be the moral issue, is how can you justify the precept against killing or stealing, for example, if there's no one to be killed? In fact, sometimes you're actually here. There's a, there's a passage that appeared in the commentaries that said, there is suffering, but no one suffering. There is the practice, but no one practicing. There is enlightenment, but no one gaining it. Actually, the Buddha never said this, and it's a kind of view that he actually criticized. So if you say there is no self, you get yourself entangled in all kinds of metaphysical problems. However, if you say there is a self, okay, you get entangled again. First in Dikanagaya 15, which is passage number 10. Here's the Buddha talking to Ananda. Okay, here, here he's taking three different ways of identifying a self around the aggregate of feeling. So to what extent, Ananda, does one assume when assuming a self? Assuming feeling to be the self, one assumes that feeling is myself. Or feeling is not myself, myself is oblivious to feeling. In other words, you've got this self that doesn't experience anything, but it's your sort of this little core inside you. My brother always said that his, his metal image of the Christian soul was of a rusty tin can with a rod going through it. <laughs> mine, mine was a little bit more prosaic. It was that this, this little piece of leather that looked like a sole and a shoe. Um, but <laughs> that one I can explain. I can't explain my brother's. Um, Okay, neither, or the third view is that neither is feeling myself, nor is myself oblivious to feeling, but rather myself feels and that myself is subject to feeling, i.e. that you have a self that has feelings. This is one of those views we talked about earlier. Okay. Now for the first one. For one who says feeling is myself should be addressed as follows. There are these three feelings, my friend. Feelings of pleasure, feelings of pain, feelings of neither pleasure nor pain. Which of these three feelings do you assume to be the self? At a moment when a feeling of pleasure is sensed, no feeling of pain or neither pleasure nor pain is sensed. Only a feeling of pleasure is sensed at that moment. At a moment when a feeling of pain is sensed, no feeling of pleasure or of neither pleasure nor pain is sensed. Only a feeling of pain is sensed at that moment. At a moment when a feeling of neither pleasure nor pain is sensed, no feeling of pleasure or, or of pain is sensed. Only a feeling of neither pleasure nor pain is sensed at that moment. Now, a feeling of pleasure is inconstant, fabricated, dependent on conditions, subject to passing away, dissolution, fading, and cessation. Same with a feeling of pain, feeling of neither pleasure nor pain. Okay. Having sensed a feeling of pleasure as myself, then with the cessation of one's very own feeling of pleasure, myself has perished. In other words, if you identify with things that arise and pass away, yourself is going to arise and pass away. So, next paragraph. The same holds true for all, all those feelings. Thus he assumes, assuming in the immediate present, a self inconstant, entangled in pleasure and pain, subject to arising and passing away. He who says, feeling is myself. Thus, in this manner or another, one does not see fit to assume feeling to be the self. 
That's what you think about it. Say you had this really wonderful feeling of pleasure, or it could be a, a sense of infinite consciousness. Okay, when that drops, then what happened to yourself? It got dropped too. It ended too. If that, if you're identifying with your aggregates. Okay. As for the person who says feeling is not the self, myself is oblivious to feeling. He should be addressed as follows: My friend, where nothing whatsoever is sensed or experienced at all, would there be the thought I am? No. So if your self is is oblivious, it would never have a sense of I am. Which is which is central to the idea of self. This is me. So if it's sitting around there, not oblivious to all the aggregates, then the idea of I or me would never arise to it. So that kind of self doesn't make any sense. And finally, as for the person who says, neither is feeling myself nor is myself oblivious to feeling, but rather myself feels in that myself is subject to feeling. In other words, you don't know your sense of self directly, but you know it through the fact that it is subject to the feelings. You should be addressed as follows. My friend, should feelings altogether in every way stop without remainder, then with feeling completely non-existing, owing to the cessation of feeling, would there be the thought, I am? This is no. So in this matter, Ananda, one does not see fit to assume that neither is feeling myself nor is myself oblivious to feeling. What he's talking about here is the idea that you may not know yourself directly, but you know yourself through, indirectly through the idea that there is a self who is experiencing all this stuff. But if you can't know, if the self doesn't know itself, what kind of self is it? If it depends on these inconstant feelings to know itself, then there'd be no self-knowledge. So it'd be, none of these ideas really helps in any way. It's not very, it doesn't make very much sense. But you notice in this case, he doesn't say that. From that, from that point of view, then, you would assume that there is no self. He doesn't say that. He's simply pointing out the various ways that we tend to identify our senses of self. And I'm sure if we could sit here and draw up a list of all the various ways that we think about our form, feeling, perceptions, consciousness, or fabrications, whether we identify with them or we think that we own them or that we think that we know ourselves through them, you always find you always stumble up against these problems. And the Buddha is saying in all those ways that you would identify, you're going to cause yourself suffering. The big issue is one, these things don't make sense. Two, if you really pursue them down to the details. And secondly, if you cling to them, you're going to suffer. So he's simply saying that the karma of holding to a view on the existence or non-existence of the self is not conducive to understanding suffering or putting an end to suffering. That's all he's saying. He doesn't say there is a self. He doesn't say there is no self. But he says if you hold on, and which is a kind of karma, Remember, we look at karma as primary, the idea of self as a type of karma. It's not conducive to understanding suffering or putting an end to suffering. Okay. Are there any questions on that, those issues? Way in the back. I just have a couple of clarifications on some things you said the Buddha uh, refuted. And I wondered about the references for them, if you can point to them. One, you said, um, even when you get really still, you can't necessarily trust what arises in your mind. Mm -hmm. Where did the Buddha talk about that? What's that? There's um, Dika Nikaya 1. He talks about the various bases for wrong views. 
and a large number of them come out of people who have developed strong powers of concentration to the extent where they can remember past lives. All right, okay, I remember that. Um, and the second one is, um, you said there's a kind of a, I think it's a um, Mahayana teaching around there is suffering, but there is no one that suffers. And you said the Buddha would have refuted that or did refute that view. Where did, did he refute that? That's in Deka Nagaya too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I hope I haven't lost everybody. <laughs> okay, well, let's go on. <clears throat> okay, the Buddha shows that by holding to a view of the existence or non-existence of itself is not conducive to understanding suffering or putting an end to suffering. But when we look at the Buddhist teachings, there's a strong emphasis on developing the perception of not-self. It's called anatta sanya as a means to awakening. So the question is, in what sense does this perception help in the process of awakening? And just as a minor note here, we many times hear of the characteristic of not-self or the not-self characteristic, anatta-lakana. If you Google that word in the Pali Canon, you're not going to find it. The Buddha never refers to anatta as a characteristic. It's always a perception. It's a practice, a kind of meditation practice where you apply the label of not-self to different things. Okay? However, on the, other, on the other hand, he says he often talks freely of a self. He says you make yourself your mainstay. Yourself should learn how to reprimand yourself. Um, you need to aim at not harming yourself. Look on passage number 12. Your own self is your own mainstay, for who else could your mainstay be? With you yourself well trained, you obtain the mainstay harm to obtain. Evil is done by oneself, by oneself is one defiled. Evil is left undone by oneself, by oneself is one cleansed. Purity and impurity are one's own doing, and the word own there is atta. No one purifies another, no other purifies one. You yourself should reprove yourself, should examine yourself. As a self-guarded monk, and this would be meditator, with guarded self, mindful you dwell at ease. Okay, so he's using the term self. So what's he doing? Is he playing fast and loose? <laughs> um, is he engaging in two levels of truth, which, by the way, are also, uh, that teaching does not appear in the canon. There are a couple of clues as to what he's doing. Clue number one is there's a teaching, we'll be going through this in passages 13 and 14, that conceit, the sense of I am, and here's conceit does not mean pride or overweening, over, 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 uh, arrogance. Conceit is simply means the idea that I am. Okay. He says conceit is to be overcome, but it's needed on the path. And also he talks about the self as a governing principle, meaning the self as your motivation for wanting to practice. So let's look at passages 13 and 14. Let's look at 14 first. I like skipping around. Okay. This body comes into being through conceit, and yet it is by relying on conceit that conceit is to be abandoned. Thus it was said. And in reference to what was it said? There's the case, sister, and this is... Oh 
This is Ananda talking to a nun. Where a monk hears, the monk named such and such, they say, through the ending of the fermentations, has entered and remains in the fermentation free awareness release and discernment release, having directly known and realized them for himself right here and right in the here and now. That's a definition of arahantship, person who's gained, gained awakening. Okay, you hear, someone else has gained awakening. The thought occurs to you, that person such and such has gained awakening. Then why not me? Okay. So at a later time, you abandon conceit, having relied on conceit. Okay, that sense of why not me? If other people can do it, so can I. Self-confidence, self-esteem. This is necessary for the practice. Also hearing about these possibilities. Other people can do this. They're human beings. I'm a human being. They can do it. Why can't I? You need that sense of confidence in order to practice. Then page 13. And what is the self as a governing principle? There's a case where a monk, i.e. meditator, having gone to a wilderness, to the foot of a tree, to an empty dwelling, reflects on this. It's not for the sake of robes that I have gone forth from the home life and homelessness. It's not for the sake of alms food, for the sake of lodgings, or the sake of this or that state of future becoming that I've gone forth from the home life into homelessness. In other words, we're not doing this to become devas or something. Simply that I am beset by birth, aging, and death, by sorrows, lamentations, pains, distresses, and despairs. Beset by stress, overcome with stress, and I hope Perhaps the end of this entire mass of stress and suffering might be known. Now, if I were to seek the same sort of sensual pleasures that I abandoned in going forth from home into homelessness, or a worse sort, that would not be fitting for me. So reflects on this. My persistence will be aroused and not lax. My mindfulness established and not confused. My body calm and not aroused. My mind centered and unified. Having made himself his governing principle, he abandons what is unskillful, develops what is skillful, abandons what is blameworthy, develops what is unblameworthy, and looks after himself in a pure way. This is called the self as a governing principle. In other words, you look at your motivation for why you're practicing. You're not practicing for gain, for honor. You're practicing because you realize, I'm suffering. I.e., this is your, it's, your, it's your issue that you're practicing for. It's, I would feel ashamed if I went back into my old ways. So I'm going to put in an effort to practice. So it's realizing that it's, it's, the issue is yourself. You're not trying to be better than other people. You're not having, trying to have an easy life. You realize, okay, I've got suffering wherever I turn. I need to work on this. So in that case, you use yourself as your motivation for why you want to practice. So that's clue number one. You need the self to motivate yourself, that idea of yourself in order to motivate yourself to practice. The self here is one that is on the one hand, suffering, but on the other hand, has possibilities, has capabilities. Okay, the second clue into what the Buddha is doing is when he analyzes how the idea of a self is born as a process of I making and my making, in the quest, it's in the quest of happiness both in the sense of the aspects of experience that we can control in order to attain happiness, i.e. that first passage. I've got some capabilities in here that I can rely on. And aspects that we identify as a lasting part that will experience happiness. Now, that's related to passage 13, the second passage we just read. 
So when the Buddha talks about how your idea of I making and my making arises, it's in the process of looking for happiness, either as I have these powers that I can use to help bring forth happiness, or I will enjoy the happiness once it's attained. Yourself, your idea of self as producer and consumer, basically. You can produce the happiness, you can consume it. That's why you give rise to the sense of self. So, this means that the idea of self is related to control. And the Buddha often brings out this point. There's a, a passage I didn't translate here, but it's in uh, Majjhima 35, where this debater comes up, and he hears that the Buddha says, well, he hears it tell, tell that the Buddha says, you know, the five aggregates are not the self. And he said, that's one of the stupidest things I ever heard. I'm going to go argue with the Buddha on this one. And his friends say, you better be careful. That Buddha, he's a pretty sharp debater. And the guy says, I'm not afraid of any debater. I don't haven't seen any debater that I can't just make shiver and quake and sweat from my debate. Not even if he claims to be a Buddha. So he goes and he takes a huge crowd along with him. And so they arrive there and he asks the Buddha what his teaching is on this matter. And the Buddha gives his teaching. And the man tries to argue that I view you know, the five aggregates as myself because you need the five aggregates in order to give rise to pleasure and pain. And so the Buddha says, so you, so you really think the five aggregates are yourself? And the man says, yes, not only me, but everybody else here thinks that they're, that they're, that they're self. And the Buddha says, you know, stick to yourself, okay? And <laughs> the other people, that's not relevant to the issue. And so then the Buddha says, okay, this self that you have, suppose your form that you claim to be yourself, um, excuse me, first he starts with a counter question. He says, is it true that kings have the power in their own realm to you know, execute people, fine people, imprison people when they see that it needs to be done? And the man says, yes. In fact, not only can they do that, it's, it's right that they do that. Okay. And then the Buddha says, well, this form that you say is yourself, do you have the power to say, I want my form to be like this? Like if you're a man and you're tired of being a man, you want to be a woman. And this was back in the days before surgery. Um, <laughs> can you can you just say, and even, I mean, surgery is really a horrible thing to, to go through if you have to do this. Um, can you just say, I, tomorrow morning I want to be a man and your body changes. Tomorrow I want to be a woman and your body changes. It doesn't happen that way. You'd like to change your race. You'd like to change your gender. You'd like to change your appearance. If you're old, if you want to be young again. If you're too young and you want to get t tobacco and liquor, can you make yourself old? You can't do that. You don't have that power over your body. So the Buddha says, this form that you say is yourself, do you have this kind of power over it? The man is quiet, this famous debater. And the Buddha asks him again, this form over which you, have, you claim to be yourself, do you have power over it? He sits there very quietly. And the Buddha says, this is not the time to be quiet. Anyone who's asked a legitimate question by the Tathagata up to three times, if he doesn't answer, his head will split into seven pieces. <laughs> and at that moment, this yaksha, this spirit, appears above the man with a big iron thunderbolt, <laughs> ready, to <laughs> ready to pounce. And so the, the debater, his name is Sanchika, sees this. And he says, okay, ask me the question again and I'll answer it. So he, he fast answers, no, I don't have that control. And then the Buddha just chases him down, feeling, perceptions, the whole list. Do you have control over these things? No. And that's the Buddha's main argument, that these things really can't be yourself. Okay, you don't have absolute control over these things, but you do have relative control. There are certain things you can do. If you want to raise your hand, you can raise it. If you want to put it down, you can put it down. 
and you have enough control over them to use them as a path to suffering. And that's the important point. Look on page 15, uh, passage 15. Okay, he's saying here, if form were the self, this self would not lend itself to disease. In other words, you wouldn't have any problems of pains, illness, whatever, in your body, because you could control it. It would be possible to say with regard to form, let my form be thus, let it not be thus. But precisely because form is not self, this form lends itself to disease, and it's not possible to say with regard to it, let my form be thus, let it not be thus. Okay, you have no absolute control over these things, but as I said, there is a a limited range of control, and that within that limited range is enough to put an end to suffering. You can change your form. For example, what we did with the breath this morning, as you play with the breath, you find that even just the breath can become more comfortable just by your learning how to become more sensitive to it. And then you can use this more comfortable form of breathing as a basis for concentration. The concentration then become, becomes a basis for insight. Finally, there's passage 25, but let me give you the outline of passage 25 before we read it. The outline here is this, that there are stages in the practice. You start by taking the raw material from which we we concoct a sense of self, i.e. the five aggregates, and then you turn them into jhana. In other words, you use the five aggregates and turn them into a state of solid concentration. Once you've gotten them into that state of concentration, okay, then you turn around and you see them as, as the Buddha says, alien, empty, and not self. That's developing the, the not self perception or the anatta sanya. And then after you've developed that perception, then you incline the mind to the deathless. In other words, so there must be a, an unfabricated happiness that's better than this. So, the passage reads like this. Suppose that an archer or archer's apprentice were to practice on a straw man or a mound of clay, so that after a while he would be able to shoot long distances, to fire accurate shots in rapid succession, and to pierce great, great masses. In the same way, there's the case where a monk enters and remains in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. He regards, okay, that's the first step. You take the five khandhas, and jhana practice, or any concentration practice, makes use of form, i.e. you're focused on the body, on the breath. Two, you're giving rise to feelings of pleasure. You're using the perception that sticks with the breath to stay with the breath as your means of staying with it. You engage in what's called verbal fabrication and mental fabrication. That's the, the fabrication process, i.e. you think about the breath, you evaluate the breath, you make it better. And then you're aware of all this that's going on. So what you're doing is you're taking the five aggregates you turn them into a state of solid concentration. So the breath would be the form. The pleasure that comes from the breath is the feeling. The perception of the breath that you keep in mind, that's the means for maintaining the concentration. That's a label or a sanya. And then the, the comments you make about the breath, is it comfortable or is it not? If it's not comfortable, what can I do to make it more comfortable? Fabrication. And then consciousness, awareness of all these things. Okay, you take the five aggregates, turn them into a state of jhana, you turn them into a path. Okay, once you've got that solidly there, and this is a problem with many meditators, they say, well, I, I just, okay, I had five minutes of concentration, what do I do next? Okay, it's not five minutes, you wait for a long time, so it's really solid. 
so you can observe it carefully. Once you're in the position where you can observe it carefully, then you go to the next stage, which is you regard whatever phenomena there that are connected with form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, and consciousness. And this goes down the list. Inconstant, stressful, a disease, a cancer, an arrow, painful, an affliction, alien, a disintegration, and emptiness, not self. In other words, you see that even in that state of concentration, there are limitations. You have some ability to turn the aggregates into a state of concentration, but it cannot be a totally reliable form of happiness. Okay, once you gain a sense of dispassion for the concentration, then you turn your mind away from them, those phenomena, and having done so, you incline your mind to the property of deathlessness. This is peace, this is exquisite, the resolution of all fabrications, the relinquishment of all acquisitions, the ending of craving, dispassion, cessation, unbinding, or nirvana. Okay. So there are three stages. You take the aggregates, you turn them into a state of concentration. Second stage is you learn to see the drawbacks of that concentration by using the perception of not-self. And then finally you incline your mind to the deathless. When you see that what you had relied on as a calm and easeful state of mind is not as totally peaceful as you want, you want something even more peaceful, something that's unconditioned. We'll come back to this section later. But that's all I want to look at that passage for right now. So in other words, the idea of self is a strategy. We make up our senses of selves all the time. Sometimes they're mutually coherent and sometimes not. For instance, the self that wants to steal your neighbor's car is at odds with the self that wants to stay out of jail. You know? Or the self that wants to eat a lot of ice cream right now is at odds with the self that wants to remain fit and healthy. So you may have all these different types of self going around in your mind, and they all have to do with what's the best way of staying happy. And a lot of our problems is that our, our different selves start getting into arguments. And often the unskillful one somehow seems to argue more skillfully <laughs> than the skillful one. Okay. At the same time, not-self is also a stra strategy. Because we're used to replacing one sense of self with another one all the time. So you identify with something and you realize that this is not going to work right now, you drop it, move to something else. All too often that process is unconscious. What the Buddha wants you to do is make it more conscious. A very primal example is, for example, suppose you have a little brother and this big bully down the street is coming to beat up your little brother. Now at that point, it's your little brother, right? You're going to go out and you're going to defend him. You take your little brother home. Your little brother wants to play with your toys. All of a sudden, it's not your brother anymore. It's this, it's this enemy in the house. You know? okay. So this is how we start out this way. We, our sense of who, what belongs to us and who we are changes all the time. It's a strategy for trying to find happiness. So in this way, we create a sense of self and we also drop a sense of self as part of our many strategies for finding happiness at different times. So what the Buddha wants you to do is learn how to use both strategies in a way that will lead you to the end of suffering. Give rise to more awareness, give rise to more discernment, and bring more awareness and discernment to the process of selfing and not selfing. Any questions on that? Andrea.
yet another detail. Um, you mentioned that um, the Buddha, in the in the Pali Canon at least, there, there's not the term lakana or characteristic used with anatta. Mm-hmm. Is it used with the other two, anicca and dukkha? Nope, it's not used with any of the three. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's, so that's a commentarial thing? That's commentarial. He uses... Um, he uses the word perception with anicca or inconstancy or impermanence. He uses the word, per- and he also uses the word um, anupasana, which is um, a type of meditation or contemplation. So it's anicca anupasana. You, you make you employ the practice of looking at the inconstant side of things. So in that sutta we were just looking at, it says. He regards whatever phenomenon are connected with form, feeling, etc., as in constant stressful. So that that term regards is that perception? Is that the he's, he, they use the word to look at? In um, um, I think it's samunupasana. I can't remember exactly what the, but it's it's a contemplation type of looking. Okay, so that's that's what you were saying then. Yes. That second type of looking. Okay, mm-hmm. thank you. Yeah, you know, when you're intentionally looking for that aspect, because the Buddha says, even though he says that. You know, form is stressful, feeling is stressful, etc. He says, if these things were totally and um, irredeemable, you know, nothing but stressful, nobody would ever fall for them. It's because they have their pleasant side that we fall for them, and all the way down with all the aggregates. So you're choosing which side to look at for the purpose of putting an end to suffering, in order to overcome clinging. Yes, question here. Where's the nearest mic? Okay. Um, can, I, can you talk a little bit more about this idea of having control over the self? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess I just don't really understand the argument that if it's yourself, you have to have control over it. The thing that, that's, for the Buddha, that's the essential part of the concept of self. There should be some control. If it's really yours, you should have some control over it. I mean, this is what control means in a daily life. Uh, this is belonging to you means in daily life, is you have some control over it. And if it were your absolute self, then it would be something that you would totally control. That's what he's saying. But you do at the moment, you, you, know, you obviously have use of your body, which is why you claim it as your body. But then the question goes, exactly how far can you control it? I mean, have you ever asked what the details of the contract are? Wait till you get older. (laughs) (laughs) And you look after yourself and you go down to the gym and you take care of it and you think, okay, we're we're on good terms, right? And all of a sudden it does something really dumb. And you have no recourse. You can't say, okay, you you owe me X amount of money for you know breach of contract. Is, is the mic on? There's a question that somebody asked me that I was at the last, uh, being an engineer, I mean, this is more science fiction than Buddhist text. Mm-hmm. Um, nowadays you can transplant um, things in the body, you know, from body parts. Um, at what point, uh, like if you transplant a brain, 
um, from what I understand, the continuity of the um, self as a tool uh, is more the continuity of the memory, including past lives and, and our experience and skills. And that continuity, if it is in the memory, it's um, as we think today, it resides within the form, the body. And if you transplant the brain or if you transplant parts of the brain from somebody else, will there be a mix in the memory so that there's confusion as to yeah. who you are, that kind of thing? Yeah. But you, you have, have to transplant the brain. That? I mean, they've talked about transplanting heart, heart transplant. Well, heart transplant people believe people. that, but now I'm not sure whether some say there's experience that somebody else's experience um, mm -hmm. is, is transferred to another person. Okay. Well, but this again, it shows that our sense of self is something we keep constructing. You know, if your memory were wiped out, would you say that you no longer exist? The particularities of your sense of self would be limited by that, that, the lack of range of memories. But you would start reconstructing a sense of self around what, what you were getting in right now. Right. So that way the self will change if... Your sense of self is going to change. Yes, it's, a, it's a constant activity. It's not a thing. It's an activity. So it's not in conflict with what we call... The tools. No, no, no. It's just that you, you know, whatever sense of tools you have, you start developing a, an, an identity around that. This is why when you're reborn with a totally different body in a totally different place, it still feels like you. Yeah, that you is the memory and the skills that you. No, you don't. You lost your memory. Okay. Uh, skills. <laughs> Skill. The skills will be there. Yeah. Skills will be there. Yeah. But even then, some of the skills will stay, and some of them will be lost. But it's this constant process of selfing that keeps going on. Okay. <laughs> so you talked about you talked about um, having not having absolute control, but having enough relative control mm -hmm. that um, these aggregates can be used as tools to end mm -hmm. suffering. Mm -hmm. I think it's amazing that that balance works. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Quite incredible, really. And my question may be more about Anicca than Ananta, I'm not sure, but I, I, I wonder about this process as something that's constant. I mean, is the, is the path something that is unchanging and always available and is the same for the Buddha as for somebody else? Is that, in, is that inconstant or constant? Well, the pattern's constant. And this is why dependent core arising was the essence of the Buddha's, or what he talked about in his awakening, was that there are these patterns that apply to everybody. And the same patterns will always apply for all time? Will always apply for all time. How, does, how is that known? Inference. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, the Buddha had his memory of past Buddhas to say, okay, this, their teaching was the same. And that's all we have to go on. It's a matter of faith. <laughs> Which I know is a dirty word in a lot of Buddha circles, but um, it's, you know, it's it, part of the practice is realizing, okay, there's things that I'm going to have to do before I really know. And it takes a certain amount of faith to actually do the things before you're going to know them results. 
but we've got 2,500 years of you know uh, product testing, <laughs> and so far it's worked pretty well. <laughs> Anything else in the back? When you speak about when you speak of identification with the self, is that the same thing as clinging? Okay, cling. Um, it's one form of clinging is identifying something as yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which means that part of the path is you're going to cling to certain things as you're making them into the path. Uh, you said that when you were born, it still feels like you. Mm-hmm. Who is the you? I mean, I don't get it. I mean, who is the you that is still feeling when you're reborn, and, and what is reborn? Okay, that, that's one of those questions the Buddha said, if you go there, it becomes a thicket of views. A thicket of views. A contortion of views, a writhing of views. What he's more interested in is saying, what's the process of how this happens? And it's generated by karma. Uh, excuse me, craving. And so the, the, the solution there is, okay, where is my craving that's going to cause me to be reborn in any old place at all? Because what happens at the moment of death is you get really desperate. You realize you can't stay in this body any longer. And the mind, the, the mind as when you fall asleep, it's the same thing when you fall asleep. You go into this state of becoming, which is very much like a dream. Well, it turns out that it has a body attached. And you go into this new state of becoming. Now, when you're in the dream, it still feels like you, right? Even though if you looked at yourself in the dream, like I'm... My experience of being a monk is very interesting. In some of my dreams, I'm a monk. In some of my dreams, I'm not a monk. Um, but in all of them, it feels like me. And when you go from one dream to the next, where did you go? You're still here, right? Wherever you are, it's, it feels like here. That's the best analogy that I can give. There's a hand over here. Okay, we've got a little more before we break. Okay, first let's start talking about self-strategies. And here's when we really get into the question of that the Buddha is answering and the question of teaching and not self. Um, passage 16 in your paper. Okay, this is the way leading to discernment when visiting a Brahmin or contemplative to ask, what is skillful, Venerable Sir? What is unskillful? What is blameworthy? What is blameless? What should be cultivated? What should not be cultivated? And here's the big one. What, when I do it, will be for my long-term harm and suffering? Or what, when I do it, will be for my long-term welfare and happiness? Okay, your self-strategy is basically trying to find long-term welfare and happiness. That's why we keep selfing. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, it's that desire for happiness and the realization the beginning of wisdom is when you realize that one, happiness comes from your actions, and two, you would rather have long-term than short-term happiness. And those two realizations become wisdom when you're based on an even more basic one, which is realizing that the question of self-suffering and happiness is the big issue in life. 
If you can, if you know, no matter what you do, if you're still not happy, you've missed the you've missed the point of the action. This is why we act. So in this case, look at that question: What when I do what will be for my long-term welfare and happiness? Okay, the what can I do? That's the element of control or the producer in here. What can I do? Working for long-term welfare and happiness, that's a sense of relative permanence. It's not absolute. Long-term is not absolute permanence. And of course, it's my long-term welfare and happiness. That's the consumer in there. So implicit in this question is the idea of self both as producer and consumer of happiness. And the question is how to do it best. <clears throat> now, the traditional answer to this question revolve around the practices that are called merit. Bunya in Pali, bun in Thai. And these are three, generosity, virtue, and meditation, and specifically meditation on goodwill. Because in being generous, your, your happiness is being augmented and the happiness of other people is being augmented. You know, the good feeling that comes from being generous. This is one of the reasons why generosity is an essential part of the practice is that sense of well-being that comes from being generous. And you realize that it comes from two things. One is the realization that you are free to be generous or not to be generous if you wanted to. This is one reason why there is no compulsion in the Buddhist teachings on generosity. If you come to the talk tomorrow, I'm going to be talking about generosity, the Buddhist take on generosity. And one of the distinctive parts of it, we tend to think of generosity as kind of a generic good thing. You go to any society, people say generosity is good. But it turns out in the Buddhist time there was some controversy about this. And on the one hand you had the Brahmins that say, yes, generosity is a good thing, especially when you give to us. <laughs> you can imagine the reaction that that would have caused. And it did. Um, there are some of these uh, contemplative movements that arose in opposition to the Brahmins said that generosity is a bunch of crock. You don't really get anything good from it because on the one hand there are two different arguments. One is that um, beings are not free anyhow. Whatever you do is has been written into the stars. You're totally fatalistic, totally deterministic. And therefore, if someone gives something to you, it's not their virtue. They're forced to do this by fate. Therefore, there's no virtue in giving. The other argument against generosity was that it doesn't really bear any fruit. Because when people die, it's just, that's it. So why, you know, if you give things to them, I mean, it's just going to go to waste anyhow, so why bother? <laughs> and so when the Buddha came out and said, no, generosity really is a virtue, he's saying two things in particular. One, he's saying that we really do have the freedom of a choice. And if you look at this psychologically, think about the first time when you were a child, when you realized that you could give a gift, and you didn't have to, it wasn't a, somebody's birthday, it wasn't Christmas, it wasn't a bar mitzvah. You just wanted to give, and then you gave it. That was your first experience of freedom. You're not just totally bound up by your selfish desires. You could want to give to somebody else and feel good about it. And secondly, the Buddha is saying that giving is fruitful. There is a value in giving. And that it leads to happiness. The same principle applies to virtue. The same principle applies to the cultivation of goodwill. You have the choice to do these things or not because you realize you have the choice to do them and they feel good when you do them. That, even, that creates an even greater sense of well-being. 
traditional ways of developing a skillful self are through being generous, through being virtuous, and through meditating on goodwill. Those of you who are therapists, who are having pe- have clients who have problems with self-esteem, tell them to go out and give. Tell them to think about some precepts that they can hold and developing thoughts of goodwill for themselves and for other, be- other beings. This is the traditional Buddhist approach for developing a sense of self-esteem. Related to that are the, the Buddha's instructions to his son, Rahula. Okay. This is a fairly long passage, so I'll just boil it down. First, he says, you look at your actions as a mirror. In other words, you keep reflecting on your actions. Before you do anything, you ask yourself, this thing I want to do, whether it's a bodily action or an act of speech or a mental action, would it lead to self-affliction? Would it lead to the affliction of others? Or would it lead to the affliction of both? Would it be unskillful with painful consequences? Or would it be a skillful action with skillful consequences? Okay, if you see that it's going to be unskillful, you don't do it. If you see that it's skillful, you go ahead and do it. Then while you're doing it, you reflect on it while you're doing it. Okay, is this actually leading to affliction for myself or for others or for both? And if you see that it is leading to affliction, you stop. If you don't see that it's leading to any affliction, you keep on going. When you're done, then you reflect on the long-term consequences. And if you realize that what you did, even though you acted with good intentions and it seemed to be okay while you were doing it, but it ended up causing harmful consequences, then you make up your mind you're not going to do that again and you go and you talk it over with someone else who's on the path to get their perspective on this. If you didn't see any affliction that comes from it, any problems that come from it, then you can take pleasure in the fact that you're on the path, keep on practicing. This is how you develop a healthy sense of self. In other words, you it's based on compassion. It's based on a sense of integrity. You take responsibility for your actions. And when you make a mistake, you admit it. and you're willing to learn. Now all of this creates a healthy sense of self. You're not ba- it's yourself is not based on the idea that I am already good, because if that's, that's the foundation for your sense of self, you're in trouble. You can't admit mistakes. So it's based on the idea I'm always willing to learn, and I always want to do the, the skillful thing, the harmless thing. And if you have, you know, if you do make a mistake, you, you have the integrity to admit it and try to correct it. A couple of years back, I was at a, at a retreat where we were going over this passage, and one of the people on retreat was a psychotherapist who was leading a mindfulness-based therapy group. And so the next day, she went back to meet with the group, and she Xeroxed this little passage and gave it out to the members of the group. And said, okay, what do you think of the, the way the Buddha taught his son? And they said, you know, if our parents had taught us this way, we wouldn't need psychotherapists. Because <laughs> it involves the willingness. If you, you know, willingly discuss your mistakes with other people, it makes it easier for you, for you to be honest with yourself. And that's a primary requisite for being on the path. And for having a healthy sense of self-esteem, that you're not threatened by the realization you've made mistakes. You don't beat yourself up over them. 
So these are some of the traditional ways in which you try to develop a more skillful sense of self through more mature eye-making and mind-making. It also teaches you to learn to to disidentify with your less skillful intentions and desires. One of the words that's used in this is you see that the consequences of your actions have had have caused harm, you develop a sense of shame around that action. Now notice where the sense of shame is directed. It's not at yourself as being a bad person, it's at the action as being an unskillful action. That's an important distinction. You say, okay, I, I realize I did have that intention, but now that I look at it, I wouldn't want to identify with it anymore. So from now on, I'll try not to give in to it when it comes. So your selfing is identifying with your skillful intentions, your skillful actions, and your not selfing is learning how to disidentify with any intentions that come up. Say, I've done that one before, I know that it's unskillful, I don't want to do that again. So you're already beginning to practice not self with regard to unskillful intentions. Okay, those are the traditional ways of developing a skillful self-strategy. Um, now we're going to play a little game of Buddhism and psychology. It's called Comparing Buddha and Freud. Okay. Okay. Freud, Sigmund. Because <laughs> okay. it, it's useful to compare the Buddhist teachings on skillful eye-making with the Buddha, Freudian teachings on mature ego functioning, because they're talking about very similar things. One of the reasons I want to do this is because there's a widespread misunderstanding that the Buddha teaches egolessness. That's another interpretation of the, of the not-self teaching, is that you're learning not to have an ego. This is unfortunate, because one, for those who adopt it, um, the not-self teaching becomes an excuse for self-hatred and spiritual bypassing. You know, I don't like this in myself, I'm just not, not going to have it there. And I'm going to try to get around working on make, making myself more skillful by doing a spiritual practice, you know, avoiding some kind of the day-to-day issues of becoming a more more functional human being. And there, however, those the people who say the Buddha teaches egolessness, how can anybody function without an ego? And this leads to the idea that the Buddhism lacks a proper understanding of ego functions and that it needs insights from Western psychology on how to develop a healthy ego in order to be a complete training of the heart, healthy heart and mind. So either way, there are the people who like the idea of egolessness and you're, you're, you, know, you want to keep them away from it because they like it too much. And the people who don't like the idea of egolessness and then they say, well, we've got to fix Buddhism. Um, both, both sides are wrong because the Buddha never taught egolessness. That's not the meaning of anatta. In fact, his teachings contain all the elements of what we call a healthy ego functioning. And even the not-self teaching is presented as a healthy ego functioning. Let me explain. Okay. In the Freudian teaching, the ego is your sense of self that's needed for survival in negotiating the demands of your superego and your id. Okay, well, Let's go over that a little bit. Okay. You've got the id, which is just raw desire, which is basically selfish. You've got the superego, which is basically the injunctions of society telling you what's right and what's wrong. If you're going to be a member of this society, you're going to be a member of this family, you've got to learn how to clean up after yourself. You're going to live in this society, you've got to do X, you know, what's right and what's wrong in this society. Now, of course, there's going to be a conflict. 
Little Jamie wants food right now. Little Jamie wants to play right now. But his mother says, no, you've got to go to bed. You've got to do this. Okay, there's this clash there. And in the course of the clash, you develop what's called ego functioning, which is learning how to negotiate between these conflicts. Because after a while, it's not the superego is not just your parents or your religious teachers. It gets internalized. So you've got all these things going on in your mind. It's a mistake to regard the id as a thing, or the superego as a thing, or the ego as a thing. They're functions, activities in the mind. So you'd have the superego telling you what's right and wrong, your id telling you what you want, and your ego is, for the sake of your survival, you have to negotiate these demands. How you create some semblance of harmony, or at least some semblance of being able to get along inside. Now, the, Buddha, the Buddhist teachings can be seen as a different take on these, these problems. From the Buddhist perspective, if you accept the Buddhist teachings and you look at them through the lens of superego, ego, and id, on the one hand, you've got a much friendlier superego. You don't have God. You've got the Four Noble Truths. And God, um, in, the, in the traditional Judeo-Christian is not really concerned with whether you're happy or not. That doesn't seem to be his main concern at all. You know. He looks at the world. He says the world is good. You look at the world you say, the world is a mess. You know. you know. um, whereas the, the, the Four Noble Truths, each of them has a task which is designed for your happiness. The shoulds in, in Buddhism all come from basically saying, hey, your desire for happiness is something that actually should be encouraged. It's the big issue in life. We're going to show you the best way to do it. Because each of the Four Noble Truths has a task. If you may remember, the task with regard to the First Noble Truth is understanding or comprehending it. The Second Noble Truth, the cause of suffering, is the task there is to abandon it. For the Third Noble Truth, the cessation of suffering, the task is to realize it. And the fourth noble truth, the path to the end of suffering, the duty is to develop it. Right. So, and so basically, these are the shoulds in the Buddha's teachings. Now, the Buddha's not there as a god saying, this, you should do this because I say so. He's saying, if you want to be happy, conditional, this is what you should do. This is what's going to get results. So on the one hand, you've got a much friendlier superego, which is there for the sake of your happiness. And then secondly, the purpose of the ego in the Buddhist point of view is to bring about long-term happiness and not just survival. Remember, the beginning of wisdom is, you know, what when I do it will lead to my long-term welfare and happiness. That's your superego and your ego working together. So you've got a friendlier superego. And because the friendlier superego... When the ego has to negotiate between ideas of what's what's proper and improper, from the Buddhist point of view, its its maneuvers are called strategies and not defenses. They talk about a lot in Freudian terms about ego defenses, and it sounds like this, you know, you know curled up, really scared little ego who's putting up walls to defend itself. Where, in, from the Buddhist point of view, when you're trying to negotiate between the various shoulds of the Four Noble Truths and your various desires for immediate gratification. The negotiation in there is called a strategy rather than a defense. Okay? 
A fourth point is that the functions of the ego don't have to be self-subconscious. You can actually bring them up into your consciousness because you're not trying to hide your bad desires from God. And then finally, there's a different reality principle going on. From the Freudian point of view, there's there's this constant conflict that can never truly be resolved. It's between the desire for immediate gratification and the desire to fit into society. This is irresolvable. They can be negotiated for a while, but it's a lot of tension. And then there's the whole question of the happiness of yourself versus the happiness of the others. It's a zero-sum game. Whereas from the Buddhist point of view, there's a lot less conflict between the needs of the superego and the needs of the id. Both sides want happiness, it's just the id is kind of dumb. But if the superego can talk to it, it'll start listening to reason. Say, you want to be happy? This is how you really do it. And then secondly, from the Buddhist point of view, there doesn't have to be such a sharp conflict between the happiness of yourself and the happiness of other people. You become happy by being generous, helping other people. You become happy by being virtuous, not harming other people. You become happy by developing thoughts of goodwill for everyone. In fact, in Buddhism, there's no clear distinction between what we'd call functions of the head and functions of the heart. They use the word jitta for both mind and heart. It's the same thing. Each desire comes with its own rationale, and each reason is associated with its own desire. So it's not reason versus desire, it's desires with bad reasons versus desire with good reasons, and they learn to sit down and talk. And also the practice of generosity, virtue, and meditation brings about a happiness that doesn't create boundaries. In fact, it helps to dissolve the boundaries. I'm always fascinated by people's ringtones. (laughs) So, any questions on that comparison? Yes, over here. Um, you said that Buddha's definition of uh, non-self comes mm. from the fact that you don't have uh, power or control over your body mm-hmm. or form and no absolute control of five aggregates. Mm-hmm. I kind of understand that. And then you briefly described four noble truths. And the fourth noble truth talks about ending suffering. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question that I have always battled with, one of the questions, is who is ending suffering? Uh, is, that a diffi- uh, is, is that a question I shouldn't ask? ask? Well, while you're on the path, you will have a sense of self doing this. When you get to the end of the path, that sense of self will become irrelevant. As one of my teachers says, when you experience the ultimate happiness, you're not going to care who it is that's experiencing it. <laughs> It's a non-issue. Because the whole, the whole thing we have is this, our concept of self and the reason we talk in terms of self and create this sense of self is it is a strategy to try to attain, attain happiness. And many times you hear people talking about when they have a, a really great, you know, overwhelming sense of happiness, their sense of self dissolves. It's not totally gone, but the sense of self of having to do something to maintain that gets dropped. 
which shows that you know that that particular sense of self was a strategy. When it accomplished its strategy, you just or, you just automatically drop it. But then you find okay, when that happiness wanes, a new sense of self starts coming up to replace it. What the Buddha is saying that you, through the practice, you can you'll be using a sense of self, and, and as I said, through the relative control that you do have over your body and your feelings and your thoughts to bring the mind to a point where it, it achieves a happiness. From that point on, you don't need the sense of self for that sake of that happiness. And so from that point on, whatever sense of self you do uh, develop, just in order to function in day-to-day life, is not for the sake of creating happiness for yourself, because you've got all the happiness you need. It's simply function. It's a, it's a, it's a sense of self without the clinging, put it that way. And then to the death of the arahant, then there's no, no no more need for self or a sense of self. Do you distinguish between uh, anatta and the the uh, federal personality view? They're two different things. Could you could you distinguish that, please? Okay, the federal personality view is. When you would consciously take a, a stance that yes, the body is myself, or feelings are myself, or any of those twenty ways of identifying with the five khandhas, each kind has four ways of identifying a self around it or in it or whatever, and you would never take the conscious stance that this is who I really am. Now there's a passage in the canon where there's a, a non-returner is talking. He says, "I still have this sense of I am, but it's not you know equated with any of the aggregates." So there'll still be a sense of I that's functioning up to the point of, of arahantship. And that I, that I is the conceit function. That's the conceit function. Right. I am. I mean, even an arahant knows the difference between who he or she is and the other people around them. When they're eating, they know enough to put food in their mouths and not somebody else's mouth. But the sense that there is this being that's the I, or an existence that's the I, that goes. Uh, from a practical point of view, then, uh, I catch myself in this process of selfing, mm-hmm. okay, and then um, I look at what I'm wanting, or I look at what I'm avoiding, or, what, I mean, it comes up from someplace. Yes. Okay, there will be a desire that lies okay, behind desire. it. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Yes. And Good. then look at the desire as healthy or unhealthy. Right. Mm. Okay. And then secondly, look at the sense of self. Have you developed, if you really want that thing and you see this is a healthy thing to want, then the next question is, am, am I going about, is this self going about it in a healthy way? And if it's not, then you might want to redefine it and rethink it. Great. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Yes. I just uh, want to say that I understood what you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, so is it correct to say that you do have a sense of self until the time you end suffering? Is right. that what you right. said? Right, right. Okay. And the whole point of the practice is to make sure you're using a healthy sense of self, skillful sense of self, and learning to drop any unskillful ones.
Go here. Um, would you clarify once again uh, what Tony just asked you about uh, personality view as, as opposed to just a sense of self that mm -hmm. might be carried? Okay. Um, again, they're talking about a specific, well, they would say a viewpoint that someone would stand up in the crowd and say, okay, this is who myself is. If, you know, if you're formulating a, you know, a formal belief about who you are. And if at that point, after stream entry, you realize you've had an experience of the deathless in which all the aggregates are not there at all. And so from that, you know, okay, there is, you know, there is an awareness which has nothing to do with the aggregates, therefore the aggregates are not really me, not really mine. But you go through, you go through life with a sense of, well, you know, they're, they're still functioning, I can still use them, and there's a sense of the I am that's using them in kind of an, inco you know, se semi-conscious form. Um, I'm just going back to that uh, um, question of letting go of the sense of self in order to relinquish the suffering. Mm -hmm. So in the ending of suffering, you're, I'm assuming you're referring to the constant Continuing end of suffering, i.e., right. every second, every minute. Yeah, yeah. There's no more suffering. Not uh, just mm -hmm. nirvana, or well, uh, it's, I mean, once you once you've had the f experience of nirvana, at that point, there is no sense of self in the experience. And then, as you return from that experience and engage in everyday life, okay, because there is kind of an on constant, ongoing sense of that dimension. So you realize that for the sake of your own suffering, you don't have to build the same kind of self that you had before that was concerned about your happiness. So I'm, I'm just trying to clarify that yeah. mm -hmm. the, the suffering, ten, there's a tendency for myself to think of these things in terms of time elements and increments mm -hmm. on the path, mm -hmm. um, you know, stages. Right. But if you're doing this letting go of the self, to relinquish suffering, mm -hmm. you're doing that with a sense of no timing, no... Um, it would be skillful and helpful not to think of this in terms of time. Right, because, well actually, the, and during the experience of Nirvana, there is no sense of time or place. Yeah, but, okay. You're but right. as you're going along the path, it's okay, what, what, which particular self am I identifying with now? Because you can't say you're just letting go of the self, because you've got a whole passel of them. And you let go of that particular self, and it's like it's like you, you've got this um, pair of rabbits back in the, back in your house that are constantly creating little selves, <laughs> and you finally let go one of the rabbits that's out of the house. Okay, and you can't say I've let go of the rabbit. You've got <laughs> there are lots of them being constantly proliferating back there, and it's only when you let go, get rid of all of them that's when and that's when you're totally done with it. But before you let go of all of them, say, some of these rabbits are really skillful and they're really helpful. Really clever rabbits, you know, they, they do skillful things. They're generous, they're virtuous, they, they meditate. So those are the rabbits you keep. Thank you. You know, and 
I'm having fun with this. You know, like the, the <laughs> Monty Python and the Holy Grail, you know, that rabbit they had? You know, the one, ah, that Those are the rabbits you let go of. You know. <laughs> so you're not just letting go of the self. You've got many selves that you have to work through. Until you finally see, well, what's the source of this process? Why, why I keep needing to create selves? It's because I still don't feel totally satisfied in terms of happiness. I've been, I've been hearing from various sources recently that there's some word going around, it's kind of like the swine flu, that nirvana is equanimity. It's not. The Buddha never said nirvana is the ultimate equanimity. He said it's the ultimate happiness. Once you've had the, you know, the full awakening to that, you don't need that sense of those senses of selves anymore. You can let them all go. So, yeah. Well, here's one here and then over there, yeah. I don't know if this is a fair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Mm-hmm. Have you experienced Nirvana? Have you well, that's a fair question, but I can't answer it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a rule against that. Pass it down. I think my question is very simple. Um, you talked about strategies versus ego defenses. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that strategies are either skillful or unskillful. Okay, thank exactly. you. Exactly, exactly, yes. Okay. Speaking of skillful strategies, it's time for my meal. So, <laughs> so we'll stop here until 1 o'clock, I think.